while the kids are going back, will you go to our Lord with me in a word of prayer as we begin? Our Father, this morning I ask that you would turn our eyes even more heavenwardly than they are now. Lord, you have lifted our eyes to your throne in worship. We have sung your praises. And yet, Lord, our eyes must go higher still. Exalt our minds to the point of contemplating Christ. Would you fixate our gaze on you as we sung that you would be our vision, our Father, and we your true Son? Lord, as we open your word, speak. Speak not by uh, my own means, but through your own spirit to the hearts of each person. Would you ordain and use the words which are preached this morning that your word may go forth to your people? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2001, the TV series Alias aired. Uh, I, Kate and I are a fan of the series. I can't endorse it in its entirety, but we enjoyed it. The main character, Sidney Bristow, in that series is a secret agent who believes she's working for the CIA. But little does she know, and I'm about to ruin the whole first season, so like you had 20 years. I'm sorry at this point. Little does she know she's actually working for the rival organization, SD6. And when she realizes this has been going on, and that even from the very earliest days of her childhood, her entire life has been orchestrated, she begins to question everything in her life. Her family relationships, her work relationships, her marriage relationships, and even who she is as a person. You know, this question, who am I? Uh, Sydney had this great identity crisis, and yet the question, who am I? is a fundamental human question, one that people in all times throughout all of history have had to ask and answer this question, who am I? Some people look for answers to this question in dangerous places. We can't help but ask it, though. And this morning, what we will find is that God himself has built this question into us that he may answer it in himself that his answer over us in Christ may be the answer we need to find our own identity. Galatians chapter 3 is where we are. You can turn with me this morning. We're starting in verse 26. We're going to finish out Galatians chapter 3. This is our final sermon in the Sola Fide series. If you don't know Sola Fide, this is one of the five solas from the Protestant Reformation. And we'll be finishing out this sermon series in the book of Galatians this morning. Will you read with me now Galatians 3? We're going to start in 25. That was one verse from last week, but we'll start in 26, primarily looking today. So beginning in 25, let us read together. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is, neither male and, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." 
I told you we'll start in verse 25 just for a minute. You remember from last week and throughout the whole series of Galatians chapter 3, we've been thinking about the Judaizers, those who were seeking to take Jewish identity and make it a marker of what it means to be forgiven in Christ. In other words, to be justified, to be saved before Christ, there's a need for the person who believes to add to that belief Jewish identity, circumcision specifically, is what the Judaizers were pushing. And yet in Galatians 3, Dave has walked us through to this point that that is not necessary for salvation, that it is through faith that all who believe receive a new identity in God. The Judaizers wanted to root this identity in Jewishness. However, Christians, we receive a new identity that's solely based on Jesus Christ, solely based on Him and what He says of who we are. And this morning, we'll see two specific realities that answer the question, who am I? The first one is we are all sons of God, sons of God. And the second one is that we are in Christ. Firstly, let's consider that we're all sons of God. You see there in verse 26, for in Christ you are all sons of God. Now, Paul very intentionally picked this term, sons of God. He could have said, you are sons and daughters of God. You are children of God. There are lots of women's ministries and women out there that think of themselves as, oh, I'm a daughter of the king, right? And yet Paul really intentionally picks the word sons in this passage. And he does so because of a particular cultural aspect going on in ancient Rome. For there in ancient Rome, men had more rights than women did, as was the case throughout much of the ancient world. In Rome, a woman was considered second class to a man, whether that man be her husband, whether that be to her father, or even to her own brothers. There was no question in Roman society, when the parents die, who receives the lion's share of the inheritance? It's always going to the firstborn son. The oldest son receives privileges and inheritance beyond the other sons and certainly the daughters in the family. This is what's going on in ancient Rome. And so Paul picks up this cultural uh, particularity within ancient Rome and he's going to apply it so that the ancient readers in Galatia might think of themselves not as sons and daughters, but rather as privileged sons. You see, he uses the term, we're all sons of God, because in the economy of God's kingdom, when he adopts children into the family, all receive the privileges that a son would receive in the ancient Roman world. All will receive the inheritance that comes from being a privileged child of God just like sons would in ancient Rome. You see, if you skip on over to verse 29, Paul makes this even more explicit. Verse 29 says, and if you are Christ's, if you belong to him, and we'll get to that in a moment, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Who receives the inheritance? Who's an heir? Well, in the ancient Roman world, the oldest son got the most. But in God's kingdom, in his family, we are all men, women, privileged sons and daughters of God. In that special place where we will inherit all the good promises God has made, including the ones he made to Abraham. You are, the verse says, Abraham's offspring. If you think of the promise made to Abraham that was just referenced a few verses earlier there, 
It was the promise from, Gal- from Genesis chapter 22, where God makes the promise that says to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, Dave unpacked this for us in prior weeks. This promised offspring is Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so all these promises of God receive their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. And yet we, all those who are children of God, privileged sons of God, are the recipients of this blessing. We are from all these nations, and yet we are receiving the blessings. And these blessings are not limited to, but certainly do include some of the following. The blessings that come are the blessing of forgiveness of sins, the blessing of peace with God, of eternal life, of victory over sin in this life and in the one to come. It's the promise of the defeat of Satan, the eternal presence of God, the recreated and imperishable body that some of you long for even right now, and the restoration of the entire cosmos. This is what the sons of God are set to inherit. You, men or women, regardless, you are privileged children by faith in Christ, and you will receive all the promises. Who am I? You are a son that is set to receive eternal forgiveness, that is set to receive an imperishable body, that is set to receive a cosmos remade without sin. This is who you are in Christ. That is the foundation for us. Not only are we receiving the answer, who am I? Well, you're a son of God, one who receives all the promises of God. But all of those promises are founded in being found in Christ That's foundational to this passage, that we have a union with Jesus Christ. The verse says that you are in Christ. The reality is our union with Christ. Look with me back at verse 26. It says there, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. It is in Christ that you become a son of God. Well, how is that? Well, it's because that if you are Christ, as verse 29 says, you belong to him, then you become a son of God because God only has one true son, one true son of promise who can receive all the blessings from the father because he has not rebelled against his father. He's not sinned against his heavenly father. That is Jesus Christ alone is the son of God the father. He's the only true son, and yet, for all who are united to him, joined to him, made one with him, they become sons. That's what verse 26 says. For in Christ, in your uniting to Jesus Christ, what is Jesus's sonship, receiving of inherited promises, what is Jesus's becomes yours, for you become a son a privileged inheritor of the promises of God. You see there in Galatians 3.27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This language, you are in Christ. Baptism into him so that you might be united to him. And if that has happened to you, you've put on Christ. Almost like you, you took a jacket and you put it on. Jesus covers the entirety of who you are so that when the question is asked, who am I? 
I am Christ's. I am in Christ. Everything about me is Jesus. Jesus saturates every part of who I am. So it's impossible to know me without knowing Jesus. It's to say that all the righteousness of Jesus Christ is now all my righteousness. We sing this, and it is a glorious and wonderful truth. And this verse uses the term baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've put on, okay, what does it mean? I'm being baptized into Christ because I'm pretty sure the baptismal's under the rocks right now. What does that mean? Well, in the scriptures, we want to think on this term baptism. There's two different kinds of baptism that the scriptures reference. Water baptism, which you and I are perhaps most familiar with, and spirit baptism, one which maybe you are not as familiar with. Let's think about both of these from the scripture for a moment. Water baptism symbolizes our union with Jesus, and spirit baptism actually does unite us to Jesus. Let me go to several passages. If you want to look these up later on, you can jot some of these down. I'm going to be jumping around just a little bit. John chapter 1, verse 33. John the Baptist is preaching, and here's what he says. I myself do not know him, but... He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, now this is God the Father speaking to John the Baptist, saying, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist gets a message, and the message is, go water baptized in preparation for Jesus' coming. And when you see Jesus, the Spirit will descend and rest on him. He won't baptize with water, he'll baptize with the Spirit. So we see the clear distinction. There is a a water baptism and there is a spirit baptism. We understand generally what water baptism is, but what is this spirit baptism thing? Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. There we read, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, he's preaching to Gentiles for the very first time in this passage. First time that the Spirit has come to non-Jews at this point. It fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, like water, poured out, even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, spirit baptism is that coming of the Holy Spirit, that pouring out of the Holy Spirit. When, Jesus is, when it's said of Jesus that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, it means he will pour out, he will send his Holy Spirit onto all who have faith in him. Even this passage uses the language that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles, thinking to that illustration of water. This baptism of the Spirit, it's synonymous with things like being saved, forgiven of your sins, justified or redeemed being regenerated. These are all pointing to the same reality, the same moment in time, and that is the moment of conversion. When someone moves from spiritual death to spiritual life, from one who was a rebel against the ways of God to one who submits their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
they are baptized in the Spirit. And when Peter hears of the baptism, he sees the Spirit poured out on the Gentiles, just like it was poured out on him, he commands them, go be water baptized. Get that baptism that symbolizes the salvation you already received by the baptism of the Spirit. The 28th chapter of the Westminster Confession is the chapter on baptism in that confession. While I don't fully agree with the Westminster Confession on this point of baptism, I do believe that they have this entirely right, as I quote, although it is a great sin to neglect water baptism, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. To say it simply, it just means that just because you were baptized with water, it doesn't mean you're saved. You know, if you come up here to the front one day, and Dave or I get with you in the water, and you go under the water, and you come out, it doesn't mean God washed away your sins. Oh, I wasn't, didn't have my sins forgiven, and then, oh, I went under the water, now they're forgiven. No, that's not how the scriptures apply water baptism. And yet also, You can be saved without being water baptized. So it's possible to receive the baptism of the Spirit without the baptism of water. And yet, I love the way the Westminster Confession puts it, it would be a great sin to neglect this ordinance of the church, to neglect or to reject the baptism by water. You know, each and every Christian, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has been poured out on you. You have been baptized in the Spirit, and yet not every true Christian has been baptized by water, has been yet water baptized. There are some of you even here today, you have the Spirit, and praise God, you have the Spirit. And yet you have not come forward to present that public profession to show publicly and to symbolize the union you have with Jesus through the Spirit by being water baptized. And so what I challenge you, if you haven't been water baptized or if you, some of you here were baptized but as infants, I'd encourage you to be baptized in obedience to Jesus as a symbol of this union you already experience with him by the Spirit. This is what our passage means when it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put him on. You've been spirit-baptized by Jesus and into Jesus. And so now, publicly profess that faith in front of others. I would love to talk with any of you who need to do that in obedience to Christ. But how does this happen? It is with union with Christ that we become sons of God. Remember that question, who am I? The answer is you are in Christ. And that means you are a son with all the privileges of a son. But how do I become in Christ? By what means do I gain entry into the family? The answer is again in verse 26. For in Christ you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. This goes right back to our series, Sola Fide. Faith alone. You see, it is through faith that we become children of God. Faith is the means by which we're brought into the family. Faith is the conduit through which we receive a new identity that is founded in Jesus Christ. We don't, when we tell people, believe in Jesus, we're not 
telling them to just believe in some fanciful Disney kind of belief. Believe in believing. Some people think that. They think just, oh, I believe. Well, when what? What precisely do you believe in? I have faith. Great. In what? Faith by itself does nothing. Faith has to be attached to something. Faith alone does not save us. Hold on, that's the title of the series. Faith alone. No, faith alone does not save us. Jesus Christ saves us. It is through faith alone that we are saved by Jesus alone. Let me give you an illustration of this. Think for a moment about a garden hose. Many of you are spending more time outside these days. Maybe you're having to water your lawn some. Uh, With a garden hose, you can make things clean. If you've got a kid and the kid decides he's going to get all muddy one day, you know, rather than take a shower, just take him out back, get the garden hose out, and spray him, right? I mean, if, if someone's all muddy, you just grab that hose. Now, what happens if you don't attach the hose to anything? You're going to get a kid real clean with a garden hose? You're just going to, like, hit him with the garden hose until it gets, like, it's not going to work. Don't do that. No, you have to attach the garden hose to something. But let's say you attach it to a muddy water source. Okay, now I'm spraying mud all over this dirty kid, and he's not getting any dirtier. No, it must be attached to clean water. You see, faith is kind of like that garden hose. It is through faith that we can receive forgiveness of sins. If you attach your faith to something that is not salvific, let's say I have faith in karma. Well, I'm sorry, karma will not rescue you on the last day of judgment from a holy God. Well, gosh, God, I really really tried. You know, I tried to build up all the good things in my life. That's like spraying a dirty kid with muddy water. Yeah, you had faith. Too bad you attached it to a bad source. You see, faith in Jesus Christ is like a hose attached to clean water. It can wash you clean. It is not the faith or the hose which does the cleaning. Rather, it is Jesus Christ who washes us clean. Through the application and the baptism of the Spirit. It is not your faith, and praise God, it is not your faith that saves you. It is Jesus Christ who saves you. It is Jesus alone who is capable of doing this, and he does it through faith. This is what it means that we would believe by faith alone. Not that we believe in faith, but that our faith believes in Jesus. Our faith is attached to Jesus Christ. And so through faith alone, in Christ alone, a person is brought into this union with Jesus and becomes a son of God. That's where your identity now lies. Because of faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son of God who has been united to him. So let me ask you, have you placed your faith in Christ alone? Have you not trusted your faith, the strength of your faith, but rather the object of faith who is Jesus Christ. Have you believed in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? For only he will save on the last day. Lastly, I did not finish, I did not forget verse 28. Let's look there, the final verse of our passage, our final and most brief point here. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. You see, in this passage, Paul picks up on three different areas of ancient culture, three divisive areas of ancient culture, race, class, and sex and gender. Not a whole lot has changed, has it? Race, class, and sex and gender. 
You see, Paul says, when it comes to being adopted as a son or daughter of God, these categories don't matter. They're of no consequence, whether you're Jew or Greek. This is directly against the Judaizers. You have, they said you need to become Jewish, you need to become circumcised, then you're really in the family of God. Paul says, no, no, no. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, regardless of what ethnicity you are, you can be rescued by Jesus' blood. Regardless of what class you inhabit, you can be rescued by Jesus' blood. Regardless of what sex or gender you are, you can be rescued by the blood of Jesus. You can be in the family, and these things are not primary. Now, some have twisted these verses to mean things like, well, then we should all be colorblind, or color has no significance whatsoever, or to encourage people to think of themselves as classless, or to not think of myself as male or female. God, God clearly says there is no male and female in Jesus. We can just make sex ambiguous. No, those are wrong ways to think of this passage. But rather, we're to think these are not primary ways to think of ourselves. Rather, our primary identity is found in Jesus Christ. A Christian's first and foremost identity is in Christ. And after that, we are Jew or Gentile. We are slave or free. We are male or female, as the ancient times would say it. You know, these are really divisive matters in the ancient culture. Jewish people were incredibly racist people in Paul's time. There were, they were dividing the whole world into who are Jews and who are not. And the Jewish people shouldn't touch the non-Jewish people. That is a very racist way to think of society. Now imagine for a moment you come to Christ and Paul says, destroy that way of thinking. No, it's of no consequence. This blows the categories for Jews. Similarly for class and for gender. Now the slave stands equal with his master before the foot of the cross. Now the woman has an equal inheritance with the man of the promises of God. Now the Gentiles are just as much children of God as the Jews are. Race, class, and gender do not matter. They do not determine inclusion or exclusion to the family of God. We are first Christians and then Americans or Brazilians, employers or employees, rich or poor. You know, and I joked a minute ago that the race and class and Gender hasn't really changed so much for us in our culture today. You know, more and more, there's this identity crisis for our culture that says, who am I? I want to know who I am. That question has always been asked in the hearts of humanity, and yet the broader public conversation in our culture has turned to the question of identity. Who am I? And that question is especially true for everyone, but teenagers seem to be asking that more and more and looking for the answers in wrong places, whether that be in a transgender or a gay or lesbian identities. Some will identify by their skin colors as primary identity markers. And while our sexuality, our race, it does matter, does not define us, as if you can define who I am by the sort of attractions that I have, the sort of sex or gender that I am, the kind of skin that I have. No, I'm not defined by those things, but what defines me as a person is what God declares of me, for what God declares is actually true. Now, you might think that 
the identity crisis problem is held to just the LGBTQ side of things? It's not. It's not. It's much closer to our own hearts than perhaps we care to think of. You know, perhaps the identity crisis for you is over work. We think of ourselves in the terms of, well, how am I doing at my job? Man, I've seen this especially true of us as the ones God has created oriented toward work. You know, we work our whole lives, and I've seen many men retire and then wonder what to do with themselves. I've seen many men retire only to unretire, to retire and unretire again, because they don't know what to do with themselves when they stop working. Why? Because it, we can have our identities bound up in our jobs. All of us can do this. It's what causes you to overwork knowing that it's bad for you the whole time. Our identities can be bound up in that work. Let me ask you, for those of you who are time rich, would you be time generous? You know, if this is the stage of life you're in, if you're one of these retired folks, you have a lot of time on your hands, you've got a lot of time for the kingdom. God's not done with you. He's got work for you. It just might be of a different nature. And those of you who find yourselves deep in work, make sure you don't place your identity in there. You are first and foremost a child of God, and you need to build that relationship first. And secondly, you are one who's called by that God who you find your identity in to work. Well, our identities can also be bound up in our relationships. We can base who we are on being a parent or a spouse or having, having the lack of a spouse. We can base our identity on wanting a spouse. We can even base our own identity, parents, on our kids, worshiping our own children, wanting everything for them, and then making all of who we are about our kids. I'm sure you know parents. Maybe you are one of those parents. Your identity is not in your relationships. It's not in your accomplishments, whether or not you successfully achieved your goals. It's not in your own beauty. You know, there are some of us that we look and we want to be physically attractive. We do things to be physically beautiful. You wake up in the morning, you ask, mirror, mirror on the wall, do I have any value at all? Some of us attach our identities to beauty, our identities to politics. We define ourselves by our own political positions. These things must not be the way we identify ourselves as Christians. For we are first and foremost in Christ, sons of our God. So here's my challenge for you. I want you to ask yourself a question to get at the heart of who you are as a person. Try this. Ask a person who knows you well, what do I value the most? Find somebody you know who knows you well and say, you tell me, what do I value? What's the things that is the most important to me? What defines me as a person? And just hear what they have to say. And see if what they come out with has anything to do with your identity in Christ or if it has to do with everything else in your life. You know, it may be that you confess Jesus with your mouth, but you worship your work. It may be that you attend church every week, but you worship your children. You may say, Jesus is Lord, but it sure seems like that politician is your Messiah. God makes it really clear that as Christians, we are baptized into Christ. We've put on Christ. We are Jesus's. We are Christ's. It's him who defines you. 
Keith and Kristen Getty have a wonderful song that I'm sure we'll sing at some point in our church, and it's the song called My Worth Is Not in What I Own. Here's just some of the lyrics. I won't try and sing for you as Dave did the other week. It says, My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride, in shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. I will not boast in wealth or might, nor human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. That is who you are. Your value fixed, your ransom paid at the cross. You are not defined by your race, your class, your gender, your work, accomplishments, beauty, or politics. You are not defined by your human relationships. No, you are defined by what God declares of you. And if you are in Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son of God. You are united to Jesus Christ. That is who you are, and that can never be taken away from you. Your worth is defined when Jesus died on the cross. Do I have value at all? The precious blood of Jesus answers that question on your behalf. You don't have to work for that identity. Jesus bought it for you. And through faith, you are his. So the question, who am I, has its resounding answer at the foot of the cross for all who will believe through faith alone. It says you are forever and for always will belong to Jesus Christ alone. Let us pray. Our Father, we praise you that we do not have to answer the question on our own merit, who am I? We praise you that you have placed this question deep into our hearts that we cannot escape it. We must answer it because we must find the answer in you. I ask that if there is one here who does not have your spirit, who is not in Christ, that you would make this question burn in their minds, that they would be discontented with the answers that they find. That the things of this world, the relationships, the work, the other ways which we seek to find our own identities would seem hollow and empty that we might find our full identity in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, I thank you that in Christ our worth is fixed, for his blood has purchased us back from the grave. Help us now to live in the reality of the truth of our union with Jesus, that we are yours in him. Amen.